whether or not we all realize it, those of us who serve the Lord are participating in the most epic adventure of all time, space, and history. I think it's about time that we start celebrating the miraculous and wonderful ways that God touches our lives in everyday circumstances. I'm Karen Pennington, and this is Daily Adventures in Grace. Karen Pennington here, and I'm just going to be transparent here. This is like the fourth time I've tried to make this recording. I've had so many technical difficulties this morning. So I just prayed a little bit more, asked for God to be through working through this. I do have a message this morning that really excites me that I'd love to share with you. It might kind of turn you on your head a little because it's about the value and purpose and opportunity for growth and something that most of us try to avoid or defeat and... Um, not always in wrong ways, but I think that there's a real opportunity in it. And uh, that is the fear, the opportunity for growth and fear and the message of fear. I think that uh, we do a lot of things to try to control our fear or our emotions in general. But while they're not our masters, they can be great servants. Uh, that comes from a quote I heard from Jim Simbler that I say probably every other episode that feelings are wonderful masters, they're horrible servants. Oh, I did that so wrong. See what I'm saying? All of these distraction feelings are wonderful servants, they're horrible masters. Lord, forgive me for saying that the wrong way. Feelings are wonderful servants, they're horrible masters. So while we don't want them to master us, they're, they're useful. Because if God allows something, he'll use it, number one. And number two, if God made it, there's goodness in it. And that other stuff is what the enemy of our souls uses to twist it against us. So this thing with emotions has really been coming up with me because we live in a culture where we're pretty much ruled by our emotions right now. Um, it's gotten degraded to the point where if I feel like I'm supposed to do it, then God made me that way. And if you tell me it's wrong, then you hate me. I mean, it is such a degradation of the truth to say, if I feel like doing it, then not only should I be allowed to do it, but... That means that's how God made me. And nobody's willing to cross certain lines. You know, if I feel like going up and slashing someone in the heart, then, I mean, I feel like that all the time. I don't feel free until I do that. Then God made me that way. And if you tell me not to slash someone in the heart, then you are just hateful. Well, that sounds ridiculous. But why would we apply that to anything, quite frankly? That logic does not make sense. And yet, at the same time, Emotions can be wonderful servants. Feelings can be wonderful servants. We just have to figure out what they're telling us. We pay attention to them. We can allow them to inform us, but we always hold them up to a higher standard. We don't follow our heart. We follow God's heart. Our heart follows God's heart, and that's where the true freedom is. Let me just give it to you on other hands. Um, in other uh, terms. So hunger. If you feel hunger, what is that? That's our body's way of telling us we need nourishment, correct? We don't always nourish our body the right way, correct? Um, but we can cultivate appetites for the right things. Hunger in itself is not wrong. We don't deal with hunger by never eating. Uh, sometimes we cannot eat, but we don't just absolutely never eat. You know, in times of fasting, spiritual fasting, 
our body still craves nourishment and we spend a temporary time away from that physical nourishment to um to engage in a deeper form of spiritual nourishment and deeper form of seeking god there's nothing wrong with that but of course we would never just not eat that's that's ridiculous that is not asceticism that is not spirituality that is anorexia that's not what we're supposed to do um that is an eating disorder that is um self mutilation that is not anything that god ever called for and yet when we're thirsty um what is that that's our body's way of telling us we need water i hope we would never deprive ourselves of water except for very small cases i have to do a tiny little procedure in a few weeks where i have to go about six hours without drinking so yeah a couple of hours hopefully we'd never go more than you know a couple weeks a couple days to a couple weeks without food and Really, I wouldn't go more than a few hours without water. And then if we're having a hard time breathing, that's our body's way of telling us we need air. Hopefully, we'd never deprive ourselves of air. Again, hold your breath for a minute. But minutes, we can't go minutes without air. That's brain damage. You know, we brain damage at best, you know, or confusion at best. And hopefully at that point, we collapse and then our body breathes while we're, you know, reviving. But, you know, it's death at worst. You, you can't go two hours without air. You can't go two, go two hours without air. So often our emotions, even as our bodily feelings tell us of our need, our emotions have tell us our need. If we're sad, something feels like we're missing. We need comfort, right? Right? Uh, happiness, joy, that's good because that tells us we're getting what we need. It's like, oh, I want more of this. How do I do more of this? You know, I ate a donut. That's a problem. I get something I need. That's fine. I can't have too much of that. You know, sometimes when we use our emotions, oh, that means I must need five donuts. No, no. One donut's good twice a week, and then I walk more. I always come back to donuts. I'm such a carboholic. But so anyways, I digress. The different emotions we feel, um, you know, anger, it tells us we're, we're feeling a sense of injustice. It tells us that we're lacking in either a sense of justice. So we have to pay attention to that. You know, is, is this because injustice hasn't happened? If this injustice, has, I mean, has happened, if there's been an injustice, then the next thing is, so what do we do about it? Do we just pray about it? There's, it's never wrong to pray about injustice. Or is God calling us to step forward if we see people hungry? Is God calling us to feed them? You know, or is it just because we didn't get what we wanted? And maybe we have something to confess to God. But either way, you don't want to ignore it. You know, I was I was thinking even in, particularly in the Greek culture in Jesus' day, there were these two equal and opposite approaches to emotions that were wrong. There was the romantic, you know, that follow your heart thing that we still do in this society. Dumbest thing ever. Your heart will lead you into the dumbest swamps of humanity. Nastiness. Don't follow your heart. Listen to your heart and then hold it up to the light of God's word. Listen to your heart and hold it up to friends who are wise and what you know and, um, and what has happened in the past. But for heaven's sakes, don't let your heart be the king. Your heart's more of like, I don't know, the court jesters at worst, but maybe an advisor at best and not the biggest advisor. So... Yeah, you don't want to do that. It doesn't want to be king. And yet, there was a stoic, the other side, which said emotions mean nothing. Just use reason. And um, there can be problems in that, too. Because first of all, denying we have emotions, denying emotions doesn't mean they don't exist. So on one hand, 
emotions are right out there at the center leading us. On the other hand, they're pushing us in ways that we don't expect. Um, I know of so many families and lives that were broken apart because people just stuff their emotions down. Um, one big thing, post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, I've just been listening and reading, I mean, hearing a lot about these kind of things where something happens even in childhood and it, sometimes it doesn't come up to middle ages where you just middle age where you just can't stuff it down anymore and it comes up and it ruins families and it because why not not because this bad thing happened which that was horrible but there was no way to process it because we just had to act like we weren't hurting we just had to act like we weren't hurting that's not it's not a good thing so I guess the center of this would be let's use emotions as a barometer not as the gas pedal, not as a rudder, but as a barometer to show us is the pressure going up so that I can try to figure out why. Um, now that's a lot of, I don't know, modern, modern psychological babble, but I want to let you know what God's word has to say about it, particularly about that emotion of fear um, and what the antidote is. Now the main scripture I have here, and this is New Revised Standard Version, 1 John 4, 18. Again, one of my favorite verses, one of my absolute favorite verses. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not reached perfection in love. So based on that verse, fear is kind of the enemy, right? And I think it goes a little deeper than that. And I, I used to always think about that, like, okay, so I just need to love, I need to love, I need to love, I need to love. And then I won't have to fear, or... You know, I need to know love. I need to know someone else's love. That's good. And I think it goes a little deeper than that. And if we look at the context of this, um, this verse, I'm going to read. I'm going to skip a couple, but read verses 7 to 12 first. Beloved, let us love one another because love is from God. Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, for God is love. God's love was revealed to us among, among us in this way. God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be atoning sacrifice for our sins. Beloved, since God loved us so much, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God lives in us and his love is perfected in us. So this talks about the source of love. Um, love is from God. And it talks about our need to love, but really where the love comes from. It's kind of like we're the vehicle, God's the gas. So we can fill up our tank with gas. A vehicle doesn't go anywhere without gas, right? So we fill up the vehicle with gas. We're not supposed to just sit there and do nothing. We're supposed to go somewhere. We're supposed to carry that love to others. We're supposed to show people, I don't know how far I want to take this analogy, it's imperfect, but it makes no sense to just receive God's love and not give it to others. Because um, I don't know if you know this, but after over a period of time, gas will eventually just evaporate away. But if you don't move the car for a while, then there's an issue. Sometimes it won't start again five years later, you know. But as we go out and love others, what happens to the gas? It depletes. Why? Because we're not the love. We don't possess the ability to love in ourselves. But what we do possess is that connection. We don't have to go to the gas station. We, 
our refill is a prayer away, right? We have this ability to just ask God, give me more love. If you don't have love for somebody, we're allowed to say to God, my love's not enough, please give me more. You know, that Sonny and Cher, that team would go, I got you, babe, that song. All I need to do is love you. All you need to do is love me. Well, their love ran out, didn't it? Because um, they didn't last so much. I guess they were still friends. Love is all you need if it's God's love. And if we're continuing, God's love is all you need. I'm thinking of all these hippie songs. but um, And love is God, but we need to understand. We need to go back to this source over and over and over again. Now, when I looked up the definition of love, one time I looked it up in a regular dictionary, paid, you know, old school, actual paper book dictionary, and it was like pages and pages and pages. You know, most dictionary um, entries are like just a couple of, a few lines, maybe 15, 20 tiny lines over a couple of inches, and this is pages. And then I just looked it up in uh, merriamwebster.com dictionary. Even their abbreviated version was two different entries, 13 different definitions, and some of those definitions had three or four sub-definitions of love. And so we complicate it, right? But in the Greek world, and in, in, well, in the Greek world, they had a bunch of different words for love. They had agape, um, that's the one that we're, that's been used in this passage, which is um, originally agapao, before Christ came into the picture, um, agapao meant preferred love, you know, because you have eros, which is, you please me, basically. I am pleased by you. I want to be pleased by you. It's usually romantic. You know, I want you. That's the, if we're going to, you know, be just candid here. And then you had phileo, which is often family love or friendly love. Like, you're still kind of choosing it, but it's a familial, I like you, you're my friend, you're my family relational kind of thing. And then there's agapao, which is, it, it's a um, verb, which in the Greek form, it was like a more enduring preferred love. So it wasn't this fleeting thing like they had in so much in Greco-Roman society. It was, it actually even defined even then more than emotion. There was like a commitment, like a chosen commitment to someone. But what it came to be known from Christ forward was instead of it just being a verb, it became a noun. And that noun, agape, that's God's preferred love. And there aren't 13 definitions to that. There aren't 57 words. There aren't thousands of words. The Bible defines it in three words, and I just read it. And I'm going to read it again in verse 16. Verse 7, God is love. Now, I looked this up in multiple English definitions, and with the exception of the message, which kind of puts it, you know, sometimes rearranges the language just a little bit to give the essence of what they meant in that day, Every single English translation that's like the modern English translation says these three words, God is love. Do you know how hard it is to find a verse that is translated exactly the same, or a phrase that is tra translated exactly the same in 1512 or 1519 or whatever the Tyndale Bible was in the 15 and 1600s, uh, 1519 is Luther, um, exactly the same 450 years ago as it is today. So then I looked it up in Greek, because you know I like to Greek out on you. Those three words, nuances and everything, a really good definition, the best definition of those three words are this, God is love. There's simply no way, other way to translate it properly. God is love. So when we think of truth, 
that's a person, that's Jesus. We think of love, that's a person, that's God. It's the same. God is Jesus, right? But Jesus is that element of God that's truth, that is revealed truth. The revealed truth of God comes in the person of Jesus. God is love. That's it. It's that simple. So when we're lacking love, where do we go? Well, let's go to love. Ask for more of him. If we're lacking love for someone else, if we're lacking a feeling of love of our own, we go here, right? So let's see what else he um, says about this. And I just want to give you a quick thing. First John 4, I think I already said this, but I'll say it again because I'm repeating myself a lot today. First John 4, 7 to 12 mentions that word love or beloved, that agape in some form 15 times in six verses. First John 16, first John 4, 16 to 21. Another six verses mentions either love or beloved. Another 14 times. So inside of 12 verses in this passage, it's mentioned 29 times. So definitely worth paying attention to. So let's go to verse 16. So we have known and believed that the love of God... Oh, I'm sorry. So we've known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love. There's that definition again. And those who abide in love abide in God. And God abides in them. Abide means not leave, by the way. It means not just like stick around. It's stick around forever. Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness on the day of judgment because he, as he is, so are we in this world. And there's that scripture verse again that's coming up. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment and whoever fears has not reached perfection in love. We love because he first loved us. Those who say, I love God, and hate their brother or sisters are liars. For those who do not love a brother or sister whom they've seen cannot love God whom they've not seen. The commandment we have from him is this. Those who love God must love their brothers and sisters also. So I just want to go back to 18, verse 18. There's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not reached perfection in love. Now let's go back and switch words here. I do not believe in changing scripture, but let's think about what they said love is. They defined word love in one word. Love is God. So let's insert God here and where love and where love is. Uh, there's no fear in God, but perfect God casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not reached perfection in God. Now I do want to change one more word here. Um, because that word perfection, I've said this often, is to lay on. It literally means completion or wholeness. So on the basis of not changing scripture, but understanding that original word to lay on means completion, wholeness, or finishedness. When Jesus was on the cross, he used that word to lay on. It is finished. That means it is complete. It is whole. It is perfect. So let's change that to either completion or wholeness here. There is no fear in God, but the perfect and complete God casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever has ever fears has not reached completion, wholeness, fullness in God. This is exciting to me, friends, because where we often see fear as an enemy, and it can be when Satan gets a hold of it, 
We often see fear as an oppression, and it absolutely can be if it defines us. And we often see fear as a um, negative pull in the wrong direction, and it can be if it rules us. This morning I see fear as an opportunity because what have we just learned? Those who fear are not full of God. So hunger reminds us we need more nourishment. Thirst reminds us we need more water. Difficulty breathing reminds us we need more air. Sometimes sickness reminds us we need more rest, or tiredness reminds us we need more rest. It's a gift to be tired, to feel your tiredness so that you can rest, so that you know you need to rest. It's a gift, it can be a gift, to understand that we're feeling fear, because what that lets us know is that we need more God because those who fear are not full of God. It's our spiritual gas gauge. It's getting close to empty. You hear that sputtering? I need to fill up on God, and I hope we're not getting so close to empty that we feel like we're running on fumes. Um, Fear gives us a little better warning than that, I think. So that's my invitation today. I'll I'll tell you, sometimes I struggle with that. I, I don't. I've never had clinical anxiety, uh, so I've been blessed in that matter. But there are times I just worry, and it chews me up inside. And I'll be honest, without really realizing the fullness of this verse, anytime I go to God, anytime I worship, anytime I remember who He is, there's not room left for that fear. Perhaps concern, not fear. Perhaps mindfulness not fear because God can replace our fear with a focus with a holy mindfulness a sober minded thinking that doesn't say this thing isn't at the door that doesn't deny the absence of peril or difficulty but it simply does not let ourselves be defined by those things because God should always be what defines us now the challenge in this is when that fear gauge gets so high, or rather that God gauge gets so low, or even a little bit low, when we take that little fear and instead God calls us to take that fear and turn to Him. Same emotion, we're going to have somebody else, something else telling us to take that fear and turn to the fear. As soon as we start focusing on that fear other than God, that fear is what rules us. That's idolatry. I know we don't think of ourselves as idolaters. I don't like thinking of myself as an idolater. But as soon as something other than the knowledge of God is guiding my emotions rather than informing them, and as soon as that I stop bowing to God because I'm bowing to something else, that's idolatry. I'm not saying that as judgment. Obviously, it's not good. (laughs) But God's will and God's best are the same. So whenever we settle for less than God's best, whenever... We bow to anything less than God's will. We do. We open ourselves home for, up for harm. But thank Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, that there's grace. Thank you, Jesus, that anything that Satan means to harm us, God can, just like Satan manipulates things for the bad, God can redeem things for the good. God doesn't manipulate. How can he manipulate what's his? He owns it, you know. 
I don't manipulate food. I prepare it in a way that is pleasing. Well, sometimes. I'm not a great cook, but you're not manipulating. Satan manipulates. God redeems. So any time that Satan has manipulated that fear to turn you towards something other than God, or that anger to turn you towards anything other than real justice, or that hunger to turn you to appetite other than the appetite for good things that actually nourish, God can still redeem that. God can redeem your fear. I don't care how far down that road you are. There is redemption in Christ. So this is my challenge to me and to you today, and it was yesterday as well. As you feel that fear, whether it's the littlest bit or it feels like it's taking over your life, what if we turn to God and said, I don't care how you feel, if we declare the truth and said, God, Jesus, thank you for this reminder that I need more of you. I trust you to fill me because you are enough. I say to that fear, you must leave because God is my Lord. Now, in order to say that, you want to say that based on a relationship with Christ. But that's not so hard. We just need to say, God, I need you. Show me what that means for you to be Lord of my life. Just take that first step. Sometimes we don't know 10 steps ahead, but all we need is the next step. So if you don't know that hope in Christ, please contact me. I'm all over social media. KarenMariePennington.com. There's several ways to contact me. Or contact someone else you trust. I believe God will send somebody to you. But for now, let's just pray that prayer with me. You can say what I'm saying. I'll say, we, Lord, we repent for making fear our master. Anytime we've made fear our master, either by ignoring it or focusing on it, Lord. Lord, fear does not define us as your children. You define us. Lord Jesus, whatever fear we are feeling right now, we thank you for this opportunity to remember how much we need you and how much better it is when you fill us, Lord. Thank you for this emotion that has reminded us that we need you and that we need more of you. And right now we ask you to fill us and we trust you to fill us. And in surrendering to you and in receiving your goodness and in repenting of this fear, we break our relationship with this fear. And in Jesus' name we say, fear be gone. You have no rights and no authority over us. And it is God who fills us. And we thank you for your victory, Lord Jesus. Um, may we be more bold and more wise and more vigilant to walk according to this victory. Because you deserve it and it's best for us. In your name, amen. Be blessed and be free and be filled with the love of God.